0: The horizon glows with the warning of a new day, so that the denizen of night can begin their scurrying back to the shadows, to the safe place where they will wait out the sun. Friday Johnson stumbles up the stairs to the brownstone apartment she rents. Her hair is dishevelled and the gown she had so carefully pinned hangs from her silhouette, a shadow of its former grace. The landlady's cat hisses at her as she jungles her key in the lock. Inside, she lets the dress crumple at her feet and swiftly pulls on a nightdress. After a quick wince of her face, she sits at the small desk beside her bed. Bypassing the typewriter, she opens her diary and begins to write. Slip into something more comfortable and find a chair with a view. It's time for Neon Jezebel.
1: This episode of Neon Jezebel will return in just a moment, and you won't want to miss it. I got a look at the script earlier, and it's a thriller from beginning to end. But first... A word from our sponsor, Baby Blue Manatorine Cigarettes. Dimensional pockets are the scourge of our age. These areas of friction between 5th dimensional space and our 4th dimensional space can have highly damaging effects on your mental health. Those who come too close to one of these pockets frequently suffer an acute affliction of the nerves that may become permanent. The only defense against this ailment is manatorine an all-natural product found in certain species of mushroom. Ingesting just 5 milligrams of manitorine can greatly reduce the harmful effects of dimensional pocket proximity. For my money, the best manitorine product on the market is Baby Blue Manitorine Cigarettes. They are the fastest and most affordable manitorine source on the market. Baby Blue Manitorine Cigarettes are wrapped in the patented Baby Blue fast-catching paper, which burns hotter and faster than any other cigarette paper available. That way you get the defense you need right when you need it. Nothing else in your pharmacist's case provides better protection for your psychological well-being. In fact, Dr. Thomas Syme, the world's leading expert on extra-dimensional affective disorder, smokes baby blues himself. The Syme Institute has given its seal of approval to this fine product and recommends everyone living in a high-risk area carry a pack with them at all times. Doctor's orders. So remember, that's Baby Blue, mandatory and Cigarettes. Ask for them by name. And now, on with the program.
2: Dear Diary, I have tragically neglected you for some time. There is a story I have been chasing for three months now. Every time I have sat down to collect my thoughts on it, My mind has been so full of half-woven threads that I can hardly start. Until recently, the threads I could articulate have sounded far more frivolous than they are in my mind. Then just as I was able to really get the story down on paper, this whole mask virago business came up and it's put the kibosh on the whole thing. But let me start from the beginning. Last December, I received a letter from Mother. One of her girls had lost a child. The infant had begun exhibiting signs of food poisoning. The mother was frantic, throwing out all of her fruits and vegetables, tossing the milk bottles, resorting to a strictly non-perishable diet. Mother suspected foul play, but knew better than to call the police in to investigate. Thus, she had me come look. If I could find the evidence on the police's behalf, maybe we could get somewhere. I went to the house and interviewed the mother. The best theory I came away with was that another girl had poisoned the child out of jealousy. But that was a theory so thin, a stiff breeze could carry it away. Even more so when a second infant died in the same way. This time not in Mother's house. The women of Mother's profession tend to all know each other, so word spread that I was investigating. The next Mother's tale was much the same as the one before, and didn't put a chorus on the ballad. The same for the next... And the one after. By the fifth incident, though, I finally saw the pattern. For a start, all of the children had been fed Saint Moon Milk Fortifier. It's an infant formula that claims to enhance the nutrition of mother's own milk. Of course, there are plenty of such powders in the store, but only Saint Moon Milk Fortifier instructs mother to mix it with her own milk rather than bovine. The message is clear no matter how the advertisement stands around it. Only one kind of woman looks for an infant formula that will enhance her natural milk. Women who aren't getting the nutrition that they themselves need. Which is to say, poor women. That's all well and good, of course. It's the cheapest infant formula I could find, and one might be tempted to think it was charitable of a company to provide such a product, much needed by the most vulnerable among us. However, this is St. Moon. Edward Blake has made his opinions on the lower classes well known. That editorial he wrote just as we entered the war. Those conferences he has hosted in the years since. To say nothing of the fit family contest they run every summer. That man is a eugenicist and makes no efforts to hide it. So, what is a company that's owned by a clear eugenicist doing providing for poor working mothers? Of course, they sell hundreds of tins of milk fortifier every day. If it was something as simple as an infection from the infant formula, there would be far more cases of the strange ailment that took those innocent babes from this world. There had to be another piece. In my investigations of the afflicted women's kitchens, I found another common thread. They were all drinkers of yippity. Yippity is one of those near beers that Mr. Volstead has driven the likes of Miller and Budweiser to produce. (laughs) Nasty things with every disadvantage of beer and none of the benefits. At the same time, there are still places, even in a city as modern as New York, where one dare not drink too deeply of the tap water. And there are plenty of milk suppliers that aren't above selling last week's supply tomorrow. For all they taste like burnt bread, a near beer is still the most wholesome drink some people can afford. The distillation that yields its minuscule alcohol content does the job of purifying the water to guaranteed potability. Yippity, for its part, has a touch of peach added to make the brew more palatable to delicate sensibilities and gives it that pleasant pink color. In this city, at least, Yippity is the only near beer that sells itself specifically to women. The advertisements are festooned with ribbons and flowers. They play up their safety, of course, like so many near-beers do. But they go the extra mile to suggest that, should a man spy an unaccompanied lady at an eatery, the polite way to make his introductions is to buy her a yippity. The saucy allusions in their stories and feminine presentation have succeeded in making it popular with my own set. One advertisement has even gone so far as to declare that Yippity is a new drink for a new woman. No wonder, then, that I should find it alongside the milk fortifier in the cupboards of mother's girls. The only reason that the near beer caught my attention at all was its maker's mark. Yippity is another Saint Moon product. I admit that I was skeptical of my own first suspicions. Is it not too terrible to imagine? Yet a suspicious nature is one of the hallmarks of a professional journalist. The only people less trusting than we are the gumshoes. I allowed myself to be more journalist than woman as I replied to the fifth grieving mother. Of course, one need not be so delicate with women of that profession. But a grieving mother is still a grieving mother. I screwed up my courage and asked her if I might have the child autopsied. Naturally, I paid for it myself. I was lucky because that fifth mother was the angry sort and more than willing to entertain suggestions of conspiracy. She entrusted me with the child and I brought him to a doctor that had advised me before. Canny man that he is, he asked very little about where the child had come from. I told him I suspected something the child had eaten was the culprit and, after reviewing the symptoms of the ailment, he agreed. Then... And this will be news to you, dear diary. Friday, I received a telegram from him asking me to visit the hospital. I did post-haste, and he confirmed, to the best of his abilities, my suspicions in full. The good doctor provided me with the dossier on the contents of the child's stomach. He identified two substances that, when mixed, become toxic. I dare not write them here, as my memory fails me when it comes to their terrifically long chemical names. He included an explanation of their toxicity that was as Greek to me as the chemical names themselves. However, I was able to compare the names he gave me to the ingredients listed on the suspect products. I had been right. When Yippity is mixed with St. Moon Milk Fortifier, it becomes a toxin. It's strong enough to give a grown man stomach irritation, but in an infant, it is deadly. Of course, I checked other ingredient lists to see how common these chemicals were. Can you guess? The answer is, not at all. While not every product in the store is as upfront about their ingredients as St. Moon, I could say in all truth that no other near beer or infant formula sold in the area where the deaths occurred was known to contain them. At last, Mr. Volstead had done us some good. Most new products in the market these days give a thorough account of their ingredients, lest they be targeted by prohibition agents. No one wants that gang of rowdy badge wearers raiding their warehouses with photographers in tow. Now, I could have written on my story then and there. Five infants dead in two months of ailment tied to St. Moon products. That's a headline that sells papers. However, St. Moon is notoriously litigious to cover my bases i would have to specify the locality of the death that information plus the conspicuous absence of the word misses would cool some of the public ire anyone who's been in the city more than a month can read between those lines infant deaths are one thing but the bastards of prostitutes are quite another if i was going to raise the hell i intended to i would need more and that as Mother says, is when the stars aligned. No sooner was I in the door of the Atlas than Percy was bellowing for me in his office. A party had just been announced and I needed to stay out of trouble long enough to cover it. It was no speakeasies for me, lest I get rounded up in a police raid. Again. This wasn't just a party. This was a gala A gala held by none other than St. Moon Chairman Edward Blake and in no other place than the Blake Oriental Hotel, St. Moon's de facto headquarters. Just before the war, Edward's wife and children transplanted themselves to Hong Kong for the children's schooling. Mary Blake, the once and future queen of New York society, is an Oriental of some extraction, though no one seems to agree on where exactly her people are from. Presumably, she wanted her children to have some experience of the old country during their impressionable years. The gala Mr. Blake was holding was nothing less than the debut of his twins, Michael and Gabrielle, of course such an occasion will be celebrated in the Blake Oriental Hotel. Not only is it the most luxurious space at Edward Blake's disposal, it is also known to be the de facto headquarters of the St. Moon Corporation. The stars had indeed aligned. If I could find my way up to the penthouse, I just might be able to locate evidence that St. Moon had conspired to poison the poor children of New York City. An infant formula intended for poor working girls, and a near beer, meant for the exclusive consumption of new women? It's a work of diabolical genius. If I could find just one document on St. Moon Litterhead confirming that the company knew these things produce a toxin when mixed, there would be no need to mention the area where the deaths happened, or to leave any clues as to the profession of the mothers. It was a slim chance. The timing was too perfect. A higher power was guiding me, dear diary, and I had every intention of following.
1: Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to hear your favorite audio programs on the go. But you already knew that. What you may not have known is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our loyal listeners. If you've enjoyed the adventure, mystery, and heartbreak of this program, the best way to show your appreciation is by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. These reviews make the show more visible on the Apple Podcasts main page, which means that more people can discover what you already know. When you're in the mood for cozy noir adventure, nothing satisfies quite like Neon Jezebel. But it's up to you to let the world know. So why not take this moment to head over there now and rate and review. Afterwards, you can follow us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. That's Neon Jezebel Podcast on Instagram. And now, we continue with our show.
2: The party was precisely what you would expect. The grand ballroom was draped with Japanese silk. The men wore identical suits, the women in French dresses, and plenty of liquor stored up back in 1919. My dress was about $1,000 too cheap. One imagines such a thing will draw rueful glances at every turn. The reality is that it makes one close enough to invisible. I was still garnering a few looks, of course how to dress deeply enough, and any man will swear you're the Queen of Sheba. Percy's assignment to cover the party just meant that I needed to keep an eye out for who was there, and maybe ask some of the notable women who they were wearing. Of course, I've read Theodora's pieces. I'm not above a little daydream about being a proper society woman from time to time. So I knew that a couple of laps around the room, and I could take the rest from there. What I needed was a way up to the penthouse. There were a pair of very sturdy looking gentlemen by the elevators. The stairs were unguarded, but I wasn't making it up 30 floors in those shoes. I could try to find a maid's uniform, but in my homemade dress, I wasn't going to get the favored guest treatment if I was caught snooping. As I considered my predicament, I spotted the guests of honor. Gabrielle Blake was sitting on the back of a couch in a Chinese dress with a dozen young men gathered around her. Her brother, Michael Blake, was chatting slowly with two older gentlemen who watched him like police officers rather than party guests. There were plenty of young, eligible women in the room, but none of them seemed to be taken by the city's latest bachelor. He was not a bad-looking man. He had his father's strong, Anglo-Saxon chin and his mother's soft cheekbones. I could see the glint of Dapper Dan in his jet-black locks but it still rose like a coif. Such was the thickness of it. Michael's shoulders were on the narrow side, but he was pleasantly, if not strikingly tall. Once one grew accustomed to the traces of his mother's blood in his face, I'm sure he would be quite handsome. Certainly handsome enough for little old me. I sidled up to him, and my dress did the hard work of making introductions. Now, diary, you well know how hard I have worked to rise above Mother's station, and at her insistence, no less. Not so long ago, every girl in her house chipped in to send me to college, all of them beaming at the prospect of the little girl that helped them wash their knickers, making good out in the world. That said, I passed through the doors of womanhood in a house of ill repute. While I did not have my first kiss until I was twenty— I was already well-schooled in the art of holding a man's attention. I have no idea what sort of girls they have in Hong Kong, but Master Michael Blake was about to experience the full force of the American temptress. Introductions were made, and the two old men were swiftly forgotten as I induced Michael to regale me with tales of the Far East. He had some real enthusiasm for the subject, but was most thrilled by the prospect of impressing a young woman no matter how cheap her dress. It wasn't long before he was escorting me to a quiet corner of the ballroom with a pair of fresh drinks in hand. For all the wonders of Hong Kong, and I admit it does sound lovely, they must not have much in the way of spirits because Michael's face was going red before the gin was even lightening my mood. I sensed my window was closing, so I mentioned that there was a rumor that the Blake Oriental Hotel had the finest of any view of the city. He was more than happy to agree and took the all-important step of asking if I would like to see it for myself. I took his arm and found it deliciously firm. Arm in arm, we walked right past the guards on the elevator, and I was being swept up to the 30th floor. The penthouse, occupying the entire upper floor of a hotel with 30 rooms per floor, was divided into wings. The west wing was where the family were quartered while the East Wing was where business was conducted. Naturally, Michael escorted me westwards. My heart was in my throat for the entire elevator ride. I was a spy, walking into the lion's den. But I was also on the arm of a perfectly charming man, who needed to be kept pacified. I could feel the splendor of the luxury begin to weave its enchantment around me. It goes without saying that the rooms of the Blake family were fabulously modern and fairly shimmered in even the lowest light. Michael's room was a bit spare. He explained that he had just removed his childhood things from the room and was still deciding what to replace them with. He poured us another drink from the one cupboard that had discovered adulthood while I gazed out the window. It was indeed a sight to behold. Michael handed me my drink. Then slid his now free hand around my waist. My bones quaked as if taken by a sudden chill. How strange it is that male warmth can affect one so similarly as a cold wind. Michael was educated enough in love that he understood what my quivering meant and pulled me tight against his belly. Delicately, he laid his lips on my neck. The kiss was as soft as rose petals and a single note of music escaped me. He turned me around, swallowed his drink with a flourish, and then kissed me properly for the first time. But no, I shall save the rest of that interlude for another day. It deserves to be written in isolation, so that it can be more easily found in the future. Once our dalliance was concluded, I washed myself and dearly wished I could have used facilities shared by his sister. Still, I made the best of it and found him still waiting for me. The womanly part of me was pleased that he had not let himself doze off. But the journalistic part of me cursed this final measure of stamina. He was, graciously, fast asleep within moments of my return to the bed. I waited until I was sure my departure would not wake him, periodically pinching myself to keep awake. There was activity in the hallway as another family member stumbled to another room, which delayed me further. One thing I highly recommend for Michael's decorating is a clock. Once I was secure that I was alone in wakefulness, I removed myself from Michael's embrace and did my best to dress in the dark. With shoes in hand, I made my way to the east wing. I found one grand room that could have been a dining room or a conference room and was probably both. Three doors led from it, one, I suppose, to a kitchen, and another, I discovered, to a water closet. The second door I tried gave way to Edward Blake's study. He had a magnificent view of the city, and I could just make out the harbor lights. I clicked on the lamp and began searching for anything containing those interminably long names for chemicals. I had only vague recollection of them, but was sure I would recognize them when I saw them again. I found an unsigned contract with the Walker Corporation, which screamed of a story, just not the one I was on. Underneath that, though, was a document regarding something called the Vaccine Project. Looking over it as thoroughly as I could, it looked like a survey of lab reports. One in five words was some ineffable Greek monstrosity, which I took to be chemical names. Skipping to the bottom, I found a paragraph detailing a strong and reliable interaction between two chemicals that sounded awfully familiar. That was as far as my search progressed before I heard footsteps in the dining room. I folded up the report I had found and secreted it inside my brassiere. Then I turned off the lamp and crouched behind the desk. No sooner was I down... Then I heard the door open. My shoes were clutched to my bosom and my breath was held tight. On some childish instinct, I shut my eyes, as if not seeing would make me invisible. When a voice from above cleared its throat, I nearly screamed. I fully expected to look up and find Edward Blake towering over me. My lie was prepared. I'm so sorry, Mr. Blake. It's just, you see, I heard you could see the Statue of Liberty from here, and, well, I just couldn't help myself. He would throw me out, and I'd be away, scot-free. Except, when I did open my eyes, it was not Edward Blake I found glaring at me. It was Mary. Now... I know you have led a chaste existence, dear diary, unless there's something you're not telling me about the dictionary. But of all personages one could be found by after a dalliance with a man, the sight of that man's mother is most liable to strike you dead. I suddenly felt that invading the sanctum of a corporate chairman was a petty sin compared to the inescapable reality of my activities with this woman's son. In my terrified state, I could hardly answer questions. I did manage to stutter something about wanting to see the Statue of Liberty, and then Mary Blake was on the phone, telling someone there was an intruder in the penthouse. Once she hung up, Mrs. Blake grabbed me by the ear and dragged me like a prodigal child out to the elevator. I attempted an apology, but the woman's narrow-eyed glare stopped me before I could finish. As we waited for the elevator to tick its way up to us, none other than Gabrielle Blake came onto the scene. "'Who is this?' she asked, eyeing my disheveled and handmade dress disapprovingly. Her mother replied that I was proof that Michael was still a very young man. Gabrielle understood that there would be no pleasure in that moment for her and returned to her room. I was then escorted out of the hotel by two very calm men in suits and left to hail a taxi on my own. During the ride, I let the shock of being eye to eye with my lover's mother melt away and embraced the rising victory that rested at my very bosom. I had it. Honest to God proof that Edward Blake was poisoning the infants of poor women. You see... I didn't tell the driver to take me home. I had him take me to the offices of the New York Atlas. The autopsy was in my desk drawer, along with my notes from the interviews. Once I added the document from Edward Blake's office to the pile, I would have everything I needed for the story of the year. I had expected the office to be deserted. There might be a couple Joes that got on Percy's bad side covering the overnights, but that was all. Instead, I found Percy himself at a typewriter. The editor-in-chief, still in his pajamas, was frantically typing out copy as two secretaries with their curlers still in ran messages from the teleprinter to a half-dozen reporters. It was the first Virago attack. Percy had been looking for a petard to hoist the vigilance committees on, and he looked like he finally found it. And that was when my story crashed down around my feet. A masked woman had attacked a St. Moon truck carrying Yippity beer, and there I was holding evidence that St. Moon was using Yippity to poison children. I may as well have written an article claiming to be the Virago myself. It wasn't as if I could call on Michael and Mary Blake to be my alibis. Hello, Mrs. Blake. I'm the woman you caught snooping in your husband's office after fornicating with your son. Would you mind telling people where I was the night of the first virago attack so I can publish a story accusing your husband of murder? So, diary, that's where I am. I do apologize again for neglecting you, but I've had rather a lot on my mind. This story will be told, and not just to you. Somehow, I will find a way. Sincerely, Friday Johnson.
1: Neon Jezebel is written by Zachary Westbrook. Friday Johnson was performed by Kristen Pimley. You can find more of Neon Jezebel on our website, neonjezebel.com, or on Instagram. Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. If you like this podcast, you can rate and review on iTunes or whatever it is you're listening from. Or tell your friends to listen. Like, even if they're not podcast people. Because, you know, like, podcast people tend to listen to a whole bunch of podcasts. And people who don't listen to podcasts don't listen to any podcasts. But you could still tell your friends who don't listen to podcasts, you know, that this one's pretty good. We think that was pretty cool. Thank you.